Please be seated. Open in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Matthew, of course, is the first of the four Gospels. It's the very beginning of your New Testament. The word New Testament means New Covenant. It is a covenant which God has made with us through Jesus Christ. And Matthew begins to explain that covenant by sharing with us the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 12, that's about right in the middle of the gospel. Before we look at the text, let me just uh, remind you of a historical event some of you are aware of. It took place uh, 164 years ago, 1858. It was Abraham Lincoln who, during the Illinois Republican Convention in Springfield, Illinois, then the candidate for the Senate, Abraham Lincoln, not yet president, he turned to the convention and said, Mr. President and gentlemen of the convention, in my opinion, it, the slavery issue, in my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have reached and passed. Then he goes on to say these famous words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He goes on, he says, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved, he said. I do not expect the house to fall, he notes. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. And in doing so, Abraham Lincoln predicted the Civil War and ultimately its final decision. Abraham Lincoln here was saying that a divided nation cannot withstand the conflicts that come with time. Uh, the nation will turn on itself if it is divided and it will collapse. The nation will capitulate one way or another, he surmised. And he was right. Either it will become fully embracing of slavery or it will fully embrace abolition or the abolishment of slavery. And because slavery was not simply an economic issue, and that was a big part of it, but it was not just that, and not only because it was a state's right issue, it wasn't that, but it was far more, it was a moral issue. A nation that embraced slavery was not only an offense to man, it was an offense to God. And so the nation went to war. Abe Lincoln was right. And after the war, it began to attempt to reunite. It took five Aprils for the war to come to an end. And at least legally, slavery was abolished. And the nation began to come back together, began to be united. Well, let's take a look at this phrase, a house divided against itself cannot stand. These are not the words of Abraham Lincoln. No, they are first the words of Jesus Christ. Abe Lincoln was quoting Jesus Christ. He was quoting from Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, when he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, note here that Abraham Lincoln was not a Christian man. In fact, there's a Lincoln here today. There are two Lincolns here today, descendants of Abe Lincoln. And if you disagree with me, you could talk to them and see if I am right or wrong. It's my understanding that Abe Lincoln came to a saving knowledge of Christ at Gettysburg. 
It's when he saw the devastation of war at Gettysburg that he finally gave his life to Christ. Now, up until then, Abe Lincoln was Christianized, but he was not a believer. He was not a Christian man. Um, much of society was very familiar with Christianity. Uh, unlike today, the, the general public in those days had a general knowledge of the content and the scope of the Bible. It was a society that was far less pluralistic than what we have today. And so the scriptures were actually household principles that guided society. Uh, people were very familiar with the Bible. However, saving faith was not as common. That is to say, they knew about Christ, but they did not know Christ. Uh, case in point, it was the Bible Belt of the South that was pro-slavery. And the more frigid, spiritually frigid, North was against slavery. It should have been the other way around, no? You see, they knew much about Christ, but not necessarily did they know Christ. Big difference. A big difference. And that's where Abe Lincoln was until that day in which he turned to Christ. It was a conviction of his soul. Uh, the Holy Spirit worked in him, and he turned and gave his life to Christ. Well, in many ways, the words of Abel, again, more so the words of Jesus Christ, a house divided cannot stand, is common sense. Would you agree? Just as a three-legged stool cannot stand if it's missing one leg, so a house needs to be united in order to withstand whatever may come its way, whatever winds may blow on it, a house needs to be fully united if it's going to function properly. A divided house will bring about the demise of whoever is in it, of the house itself. However, it is with these words that Christ reminds the listeners of how irrational we can actually be. He explains something that we would think is common sense. And what we discover is that common sense doesn't always make much sense. Common sense is not always common. <laughs> it's one of the greatest truths we see today, isn't it? Right? Just watch the news for 15 minutes and you wonder, where is the common sense? It is not common at all. <laughs> well, if you were to look at chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, I, I guess I didn't break down the whole chapter, but I did start at verse 22. And here's a little homework for you. Go home and read the rest of the chapter. We're not going to look at the entirety of the chapter. But here's how the chapter breaks down beginning at verse 22. You might want to write it down or, or take a picture. How to recognize the work of God. How to recognize the work of God is the very first part of verse 22 through 32. And then, if you look at verses 33 through 37, you see there how to recognize who is a believer of Christ. How do you recognize someone who is a believer in Christ? Beginning at verse 38, you see reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. And then beginning at verse 43, the danger of unbelief, the danger of not believing in Jesus Christ. And then beginning at verse 46 to 50, who is the family of God? Who is the family of God? And if 
most Bibles, I would imagine, have these verses already broken down, but with different titles. What I did is I broke down the content for you, so it'll be easier for you to study at home, which I'm sure you will all do. Our focus this morning is going to be on that very first section, beginning of verse 22 through uh, 32 or so, with special attention to verse 25. Verse 25. How to recognize the work of God. How to recognize the work of God. And what you'll notice here is that the people who were watching Christ, listening to Christ, were finding it difficult to understand whether or not Christ was God. Uh, They were finding it difficult to recognize whether or not Christ was the Messiah, the Savior, just as he claimed to be. And you'll notice in verse 22 that Jesus heals a man who is controlled by a demon or by plural demons. We don't know how many, but we know that he is controlled by demons. This still does exist today, does still occur. It's just not as common in our circles as it is in other circles. But please understand that this is very much true. I remember speaking about this one day, and a fellow said to me, um, you know, I don't believe in the devil. I, I don't believe that he still works. And I could tell you this today, he's abandoned the Lord. I think the devil got his way. I don't believe that the devil's around and working mischief in the lives of Christians. Well, today he's not walking with the Lord. I, I think the devil's very much alive in his home. Well, this man in particular was both blind and mute. And verse 22 tells us why. It was because of this demonic oppression. He can neither see and neither can he talk. And in verse 23, the people are just amazed at what Jesus Christ does. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Why? Because Christ had just healed this man. And the people are not fascinated by the fact that this man is is now seeing and talking. They're not fascinated with this man. They're fascinated with the healer. They're fascinated with Jesus Christ. Let me just give you one little side note here. Uh, Obviously, Jesus Christ is doing something miraculous. And many people say, you know, if I saw a miracle, I would believe in Jesus. And just as we saw last week, once again, we see this week, miracles do not create faith. As we see in Luke 16, miracles do not create faith. What miracles do is simply point to the one we need to believe in. It doesn't make us believe. It doesn't give us uh, uh, the ability to believe. What it does is simply point to the one in whom we should believe. And here is the case. These people are fascinated with Christ, and they're wondering, is this the son of David? Which is another way of saying, is this the Messiah? Is this the Savior, the son of David? the promised Messiah through the lineage of David. Look how the religious leaders respond at verse 24. It is rather surprising because these are the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The Pharisees very quickly object to what the people, the general public are saying. They're looking at what Christ just did and they're saying, could this be the Messiah? And it is the religious leaders who very quickly object. Now keep in mind that the the Pharisees were the epitome of religious people. There were hundreds of laws. And these people made it their utmost challenge 
to keep every single one of those laws every day, and they were proud of it. They did a rather good job at keeping those laws. And this is why. They believed that if they were to do the right things, they would become righteous. If I do the right thing, if I obey God without question, without violation of his law, then I will be righteous. And many of us think the same way. What must I do to inherit the, the kingdom of God? I must do all the right things on a daily basis, and I'll be righteous. That's what the Pharisees lived for. In reality, they had it backwards. It's quite the other way around. You see, in order for you to become righteous, you have to be made righteous. You cannot make yourself righteous by doing all the right things. To be righteous means that you are in a state of rightness. And how can you do what is right if you are not righteous? You see, in order for your actions to matter, you have to be righteous first. Your actions don't make you righteous. God makes you righteous so that then your actions will be made right. Otherwise, what we see in Isaiah 64, 6 is that all of your righteous deeds, all of your good deeds are filthy rags. Filthy rags. Oh, but they were righteous. <laughs> yeah, but it, it just came through a filthy heart. Pure water coming through a rusty pipe is no longer pure. And neither are our righteous deeds when they are tunneled through our irrighteous hearts. Righteousness is not what you do. Righteousness is a state of being. It's who you are. Not a state of doing, but a state of being. And what Christ does for us who believe to anyone who believes, without exception, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess him as your Lord and Savior, that is, you give your life to him with faith and repentance, what he does is he takes his righteousness and places it on you, and he takes your sins and places it on him. It's called theologically imputed righteousness. He takes his righteousness, it's not yours, it's his, but he gives it to you so that now you will be deemed righteous. You're his child then. And when God sees your sins, he actually now sees Christ's righteousness. It's a beautiful truth. So that when Christ sees me, he sees Christ first. When God sees me, he sees Christ. His righteousness. And my sins placed on Christ. The Pharisees had a hard time understanding that. They believed that if they do all the right things, they would become righteous. And so look at what they say at verse 24. This is how the, the religious, very religious men, these Pharisees, responded to the people who were believing to some extent in Jesus Christ. They say to them, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. How is this man able to cast out the demons from this mute blind man? Through the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Beelzebul is another name for Satan, Lucifer, the devil. So he's saying it's through the power of the devil that he's able to actually cast out demons. 
when in reality, what we see here in this text, that Jesus Christ is casting out these demons through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's doing this through the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's how Jesus Christ does or creates all his miracles. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look at verse 18, the same chapter. There's various passages we could go to, but let me just stick here to Matthew 12. Look at verse 18. You see the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 reads, "I I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice. How will Jesus Christ proclaim justice? How will Jesus Christ carry out his ministry? Through the Holy Spirit. Jump down to verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Had the kingdom of God come upon them? Yes. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was doing this work through the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the same Holy Spirit we possess today as believers in Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go out and try to do miracles. Do not try to walk on water. But I am saying that according to his will, the Holy Spirit empowers you to live a life in accord with God's word. You have the Holy Spirit with you. Jesus Christ, of course, responds to these Pharisees at verse 25. The verse begins with these words, knowing their thoughts. So Jesus Christ uh, uh, knows, he's aware of their thoughts. And how is he aware of their thoughts? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus Christ says to them. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. In other words, it's destroyed, it's worthless, it's laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. No city or house divided against itself will stand. Uh, You'll notice there that it begins with kingdom, then nation, and then, or city, and then house. Some versions will say nation instead of city. Why? Because then we had city nations. Cities would, would, would constitute a nation. You'll notice how it begins broad, kingdom, and then it becomes more narrow, city, and then more specific, a house. I believe based on this principle we could add to it. We could say the same is true of a divided church will collapse. And a divided marriage will not stand. Same principle being applied to these relationships. And so the reasoning is carried over into the realm of Lucifer. He says, if it's true of a kingdom, if it's true of a city, if it's true of a house, then it's also true of the kingdom of the devil himself. Verse 26 reads this way. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If Satan works against Satan, he will collapse his own kingdom. So obviously he was not casting out his own demons. Uh, Satan's power is cumulative. Uh, In order for it to contend against the kingdom of God, it must snowball. It must grow. And obviously our culture, not only today, but even in the past, we are more than willing to allow Satan's kingdom to swell up and rise up against God. A 
a kingdom cannot stand, not even Satan's kingdom, if it divides against itself. And then Christ reasons further than that. Look at verse 27. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judge. It's very interesting that between the Old Testament and New Testament, there was this intertestamental period, right, about 400 years, in which really there was nothing uh, said about God or uh, from God. It's called the intertestamental period, years of silence. But what did happen during that era were numerous rabbis uh, began to perform exorcisms. And they were well established as men who would come and cast demons out of other people. And what Christ is saying here is that if these rabbis are doing this by the power of God, then obviously I am too. If these rabbis are doing this by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, then give me that credit as well. Otherwise, are you saying that they cast out demons by the power of God and I don't? Or are you saying that they're casting out demons by the power of the devil too? If you're calling them people who are being empowered by Satan, then they will be your judge, Jesus Christ is saying. So if you give them the credit of saying they're doing the work of God through the power of the Spirit, then acknowledge the same thing for me because I am doing the same thing as they. My friends, the issue is this, that internal strife causes destruction. Internal strife causes destruction both for us but even for the kingdom of the devil himself for the devil to cast out his own minions would mean that he is casting out himself it's a rather simple passage although at first glance it looks a little a little complex what I want to give you this morning is three simple ways in which you can acknowledge in which you can recognize the work of God How can you tell whether or not something is of God? Whether a ministry is of God? How can you tell whether or not something has God's stamp of approval in terms of church ministry or work and effort by somebody who claims I'm doing this in the name of God by the power of God? How do you know whether or not it's true? You know, we have so many ministries in this world and many, many are legitimately from God, but then you have a lot that are not, and many of these become very popular. And how do you know whether or not it is of God? Well, we have three rules here, and if you search through the scriptures, there are others, but we're going to stick to our text, and you look at verse 28, and there we see the first way in which we can know whether or not something is of God. And here's the first one. True God-ordained ministry restrains evil, And does not use or condone evil. True God-ordained ministry restrains evil and does not use or condone evil. Verse 28 reads this way. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, anything that's really of God is not going to use violence. It's not going to condone what God says is not good, what God says is wrong. 
and neither will it use human philosophy. Rather, anything that is of God will use divine principles and godly methods. Any true God-ordained ministry will use divine truth, divine principles, and godly methods and seek to restrain what is wrong, restrain what is evil, not use it in order to promote the truth of God. Sounds like common sense, but common sense is not always so common. Here's principle number two. We find it in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Principle number two is true ministry from God works in conjunction with God's word and promotes God's doctrine. Uh, Some people are intimidated by the word doctrine. Doctrine simply means the teachings of God, the teachings of God's truth. That's all it is. It's a good word. We should use it. We should learn it. Doctrine. True ministry from God works in conjunction with God's word and promotes God's doctrine. Again, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. In other words, you'll notice here that there's no middle ground. Either you're with me or you're against me, is what Christ said. There's no in-between. There's no gray area. With me or against me. True ministry from, from God does not simply utilize God's word to his advantage. It does not sprinkle God's word wherever it would be advantageous. It does not twist God's word and take just pieces of God's word in order to to make its point. But rather it takes the whole of it and teaches it clearly. We could all think of some TV evangelists who like to take just little snippets of God's word and say, see? See? And then send me some money. True ministry is saturated with God's truth and is not simply parallel to God's truth. Some people take the world's way of thinking and they try to put it alongside of God's way of thinking and try to keep the two from ever crisscrossing, intersecting. That's not true God-ordained ministry. God-ordained ministry is soaked in God's truth. It's about God's truth. And here's number three. True ministry from God promotes unity by bringing what is of God together. True ministry promotes unity by bringing what is of God together. Again, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. True ministry discerns and embraces together what is of God. It embraces together what is of God. There's unity if it is of God. Those who are not of God, we see here, they scatter the people of God. They divide the word, the people of God. Now, it's interesting because uh, just as I was preparing this sermon during the week, I was with my son and um, uh, driving back in 
and I stopped at the mailbox to pick up the mail, and there was a stack of um, letters, uh, mail, just regular correspondence. But there was one uh, which I looked at, and I said, uh-oh, there's no return address on it. And my son said, no big deal. I said, well, usually when there's no return address, and it's a handwritten letter or you know, personal letter, it means that they're going to tell me something they don't want to be identified with. I have a general rule with letters that do not have return address on it. I said, I don't read them. I don't read them. Why? Because I've learned that usually they're going to say something that they don't want to be identified with them. I call them sniper letters. You shoot and duck. And I do peruse them. I feel compelled to peruse them. I always regret it, but I don't read them. Now, sometimes, maybe even often, uh, the, these writers are very well-meaning, um, but they are also very maligning. Uh, they will accuse the church or myself of being heretics, of blasphemy, or anything that's simply not suitable for any pastor. But that's what these letters do. And I did open the letter, and I did peruse it, and indeed, it was yet another one. Same thing. Whoever does not gather scatters. If these people only knew what, what, what harm they do by writing these supposedly well-intended letters, if they only knew how much harm they caused, they would not write it. At the very least, give me a return address so that we can dialogue and see where the fault, where the blame is. If there's truth, it needs to be corrected. I'm all for that. I think these letters work harder for the case of Beelzebub than for the case of God. It's just a simple example, my friends, of how words matter. This is a rather common, frequent enough episode. But I just want you to know that words matter. What we say will either disrupt or unite the people of God, the kingdom of God. And it doesn't have to be written, it's what we say to each other. What we say from day to day, how we live, makes a difference, a deep difference. And either we will unite the people of God or we will sever the people of God with our words, whether it's with our tongue, a ballpoint pen, or an email. Words matter. Tremendously so. Not only that, but verse 35, if you look there, verse 35 tells us that our words reveal to us who we are. The mouth speaks according to what abounds in your heart. Whatever is lavished in your heart, it's going to come out through your mouth. And so you know who you are by what comes out through your mouth. And yet Jesus Christ spoke very differently about how the church should conduct itself, how people who profess Christ should conduct themselves. In John chapter 17, we see, we read the last prayer of Jesus Christ, at least the last recorded prayer of Jesus Christ. It's the same episode that we looked at last week, but we looked at the Matthew version of it. And Matthew did not give to us the prayer, simply told us that 
Jesus prayed. Well, John actually takes the time to write the prayer out, and, and, and it's recorded in chapter 17, verse 11. Actually, the whole chapter, but the emphasis on verse 11. Look at what Jesus Christ prayed in verse 11. It's a pretty heavy prayer. It's a pretty heavy request. Look at what he said. He said, Holy Father, now keep in mind, he's about to go to the cross. This is just before Peter slashes Malchus's ear off. Right? Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That they would be one, even as God the Father and God the Son are one. That's what Christ was praying for his people. That they would be one, even as he and the Father are one. Now that's pretty heavy, would you agree? Uh, some of you were downstairs when we were talking about the Trinity and, and this element of the perichoresis of the Trinity. You remember that? How God and three persons are intertwined with each other and one is dependent on the other. And if you eliminate one, you eliminate God and that would be impossible. The perichoresis. And here Jesus Christ is praying for a sort of perichoresis within the people of God. That's the depth of the unity that he calls for, that he prays for. How should we be united? Well, there's three ways in which we should be united. Why? Because a house divided will not stand. We need to be united in cause. We need to be united in creed. And we need to be united in charity or in love. I just want the three C words. Cause. United in cause. We are to strive together for the kingdom of God. That's our priority. The things of God. We strive together for the cause of God. United. We cannot do it alone. It's the beauty of the church. We don't have to do it alone will fail if we are alone. So we're united in cause. Secondly, we're united in creed. What we believe. Together, we take this truth, the truth that has been given to us, the truth that has changed us, we take that truth and together we march forward in creed. And we are united, we are to be united in love. We are to meld our hearts together for one another, to one another, so that we can honestly strive for God's kingdom, for his cause, so that we can very practically strive for what we believe. You see, it will be impossible for us to strive for God's cause or God's creed if we are not united in love. Love is the priority for the others to occur. Uh, Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that if you have all your cause and all your creed right, but you have not love, what do you become? A gong. A gong. Just a, a big bang. And that's it. Gets everybody's attention, but it does nothing. A gong. That's all we are. If we are not united in cause, creed, and love. Rather, if we are not united in love, and therefore cause and creed. Keeping in mind that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so Christ prays for unity. 
And I'm glad to be able to proclaim these words in the time in which we are at peace with each other. I thank the Lord for seasons of peace. It is good. But it can be better. Let's be the answer to Christ's prayer. Now, I realize that this passage here speaks of the unpardonable sin. Now, I was not looking to speak on the unpardonable sin this morning, but it's kind of hard to ignore it, and some of you will get angry at me if I do ignore it. After all, it is part of the text this morning. It's a very big part of the text. And so, under the heading of the follower of Christ, let's take a look at verses 31 and 32, and there we see the unpardonable sin. What is this sin that God will not forgive? Have you ever wondered that? Has it ever scared you? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Because you know that if there's one unforgiven sin in your life, you will not enter heaven. So what is this unpardonable sin? It is not murder. It is not rape. It is not embezzlement. It's not fornication. What we see at verse 31 is that this unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So it is very specific blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It reads this way, verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, will not be pardoned. Well, as you know, the New Testament is written in ancient Greek. Koine Greek is what it's called. And the word there for blasphemy is a very specific has a very specific meaning. It means to be slow to acknowledge something to be right, or to be slow to acknowledge something to be sinful or evil. Slow to acknowledge that evil is evil, or slow to acknowledge that what is true is true. But it also means to switch right for wrong. It means that you would call what God has disapproved of and say, oh, that's right. God disapproves of it, but now it's okay. It's right. That's blasphemy. That's what blasphemy means. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it speaks of how the world has exchanged the truth for a lie. Uh, that would be blasphemy. And here, verse 31, once again, it says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, it's this. It is the act of being slow to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in the Messiah and calling it evil that is blasphemy. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, nope, that's not the Holy Spirit. He's doing this by the hand of the devil. And therefore they were committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Verse 32 reads this way. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now this verse is not saying that it's okay to speak badly about Jesus Christ. But uh-uh, you can't do that to the Holy Spirit. That one will be acceptable. It's, it's not what it's saying. It is saying this, that as Jesus Christ was living out his life and carrying out his ministry here for three years, carrying out his ministry, 
as the Messiah, it was difficult to recognize whether or not he was truly God. He was so much a man, it was very hard for people to say, well, there's God. And so that's why these people are saying, is this the son of David? I don't know, but it looks like it. It was very difficult for them to actually comprehend that Jesus Christ is God. So much so that even today, many people question whether or not Jesus Christ is God. If you take a look at Matthew chapter 16, just a few chapters after this, in verse 17, Peter makes his great confession. And he says to Jesus Christ, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And how does Jesus Christ respond? Look at what Jesus Christ says to Peter when Peter realizes that Jesus Christ is God. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my father who is in heaven. How did Peter know that Jesus Christ was God? Because God the Father revealed it to Peter. It was not because he lived next to Christ for three years. This was something that had to be taught to him by God. How is it that you know that Jesus Christ is God? It is something that God has taught you. It is not something you deduced. It's not something you assumed. It's not something that came naturally to you. It is something... It is a conviction that you have because God has placed that in your heart. You see, believing in Christ as God is not natural. It is something supernatural. It's the work of God. Naturally speaking, humanly speaking, there was reason to question whether or not Jesus Christ was God. And so the Father had to reveal this to them. However, looking at what Jesus Christ was doing, there was absolutely no reason whatsoever to question whether or not the Holy Spirit was present. There was absolutely no reason to question as to whether or not this was the Holy Spirit or Beelzebul who was doing this. The life of Christ, the words of Christ, adjudicated by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ, to do these great miracles gave sufficient reason for them to believe that God, the Holy Spirit, was in Jesus Christ. And so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, is knowing and continuing to oppose the work of Jesus Christ, which was empowered by the Holy Spirit, which was empowered by God himself. Thus, the unpardonable sin is a persistent denial that Jesus Christ is the Savior who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we see the Holy Spirit throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ at the very inauguration of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Do you recall why Jesus Christ went into the wilderness? He was led by the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, you know what, I think I'm going to go down through this wilderness for 40 days. No, the Holy Spirit led him there. And if you go to the very end of the ministry of Jesus Christ, recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it says that it was through the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ endured the cross. It wasn't because of his ability. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mind you, remind you, the same Holy Spirit you have. Jesus Christ was dependent on the Holy Spirit. And the unpardonable sin is to deny the work of the Holy Spirit through the Messiah, 
Jesus Christ and thus deny Christ. As long as you do not believe, you cannot be pardoned. For as long as you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Redeemer, your Forgiver, you cannot be pardoned. That's the unpardonable sin. The followers of Jesus Christ are those who believe the claims of Christ to be the Savior, to be the forgiver of sins through the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. And so I would invite you to come. Come to Christ. If you're not a Christian yet, I would say today is the day of salvation that you would acknowledge that you are in need of Christ, that you need a Savior. Maybe you know about Christ. The question is, do you know Christ? And that you bow your life in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ, acknowledging that it was through the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ lived, suffered, and died for us. And that he is God. That he is God. If you are already a Christian, remember, a house divided cannot stand. That Christ prayed for unity and expects unity among his people. In love, in creed, and in cause. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Savior, we thank you for the great example that you give to us in Matthew chapter 12. And thank you, Lord, that through your spirit, your house does not have to be divided. That we have not only the reason for unity, we have the means of unity through your spirit in us. In your name we pray. Amen.